good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here this morning, especially those of you who are visiting with us. We want you to know that uh, you are a special guest and that we're thankful that you have chosen to spend these moments of worshiping together uh, with us uh, in this congregation. So we're happy that you are here. Listen, uh, if this is the first time that you have attended a, a Church of Christ, if you have heard anything or seen anything uh, thus far in the service, or maybe even in the lesson that I'm going to be sharing with you after a few moments here, I would encourage you to talk to me about it. I'll try to give you an answer from the Bible, and if I can't, maybe I can direct you to someone who can, or maybe we can sit down and study together about some of the things that we'll be uh, talking about. So we're glad that you are here. Let me make you aware as a congregation that our coffee bar began this morning. And it's a, uh, you know, the coffee bar is a self-serve thing. It's back in the fellowship uh, hall area. And it's before service, in the middle of the classes and the service, as well as after the service. If you'd like to, you know, just get together with one another and uh, reconnect with one another and share a cup of coffee, then certainly that would be something you might want to uh, do. Then we also remind you as a congregation that on May the 15th is our celebration for our graduates in the Sunday evening, followed by a finger of food deal. And then, of course, our a cappella in the park, which is going to be a community evening of singing that's going to begin at 6 o'clock at Kleiner Park. And we're going to have various singing groups, some from our congregation, some from the Boise congregation, some from the Napa congregation, possibly Caldwell. Anyway, we're going to just get together and have an evening of singing together with one another. We'll do some congregational singing or all participant singing. And so it's going to be a wonderful time together on that evening. So you might be thinking about that. Prior to the acapella in the park at 6 o'clock, we're going to have a hot dog and hamburger a barbecue. And that starts at 4 o'clock. It's at Kleiner Park beside the pavilion right by the, the playground that is there. And we're just going to get together as a, a congregation and spend some time together enjoying a meal together. And so let me encourage you to uh, be, uh, think about participating in our barbecue. Okay, let's get into the lesson. So last Sunday morning, I shared with you a lesson that I call Jesus Christ, Fact or Fiction. And what I asked you to do is I asked you to use your imagination in terms of that you own a bookstore. So if you were to own a bookstore, uh, how would you treat that bookstore? How would you use that bookstore? In bookstores, you have a section that is called the nonfiction area, and then you have a section of the books that are called the fiction area. In the fiction area of the bookstore, you're going to have books about fantasy, about ministry. You're going to have Don Quixote. You're going to have the Easter Bunny. You're going to have Hercules. You're going to have stories about places and events and things that are taking place that are, are not real. Sometimes there is historical you know, fiction or nonfiction, but for the most part, it's not something that is real or historically fact-based, Okay. And then on the other side of the story, you're going to have the non-fictionary. And the non-fictionary is about people and places and events, history that is real, something that has really taken place. And so I asked you, as you think about this bookstore, I asked you, where would you place the Bible? Where would the Bible sit in terms of your bookstore? Would it sit over there in the area where Hercules and Don Quixote are in, uh, in the fantasy area? Or would you put it over in the nonfiction area that is based on fact, which is based on places, on history, on people, and things like that? Where would you place the Bible? And then I followed that up by asking, where would you put Jesus? Would you put Jesus in the non-fictional area, or would you put him over in the fictional area? Where would you place him? So I share with you a lesson out of Romans, the first chapter, verses 1 down through 6. 
And in that section of Scripture, there Paul talks about Jesus Christ, and he talks about what our response should be towards Jesus Christ. And so he talked about the reality of Jesus. And in verses 2 and 3, there he says that Jesus' bloodline goes back to David in the flesh. So what he's saying is that Jesus has a, a bio, biological past, that he has a past that you could look down through and find out where he came from and who he was related to. And I gave you as an example Matthew, the first chapter, which is the genealogy of Jesus that has Abraham and, of course, David that is in it, and Jesus is connected back to that bloodline or to that lineage that was there. So that means that he was a person that was a reality, that he was a living historical character, that the scriptures teach that he died on the cross and that he resurrected from the grave to life. And that over 500 witnesses saw that. But a person might say, well, you know, okay, so how do you know this reality? Well, the Bible says he is. Yeah, but listen, I don't believe in the Bible. Well, then I presented to you some extra-biblical references. And then we looked at a fellow by the name of Flavius Josephus, who was at one time a, Rome, a, a Jewish general in the army. He became a traitor. He became then a Roman historian. And in his book called Josephus, he writes about Jesus, and he writes about the fact that he actually was brought before Pilate, that Pilate condemned him to death or crucifixion, that he died on the cross. Josephus says that he even resurrected and came back to life and that people were followers of his. I also presented to you another fellow, which is, his name was Lucian. And Lucian was a Greek philosopher, a writer, a satirist. Uh, he was a lot of different things, but Lucian was well thought of and well listened to. And he was an antagonist towards Christianity. In other words, he did not believe in Jesus Christ. He thought that anyone else that did believe in Jesus Christ were out of their minds, okay? And yet he talked about this historical Jesus who was, you know, was arrested, was, uh, was crucified. He even goes on to say that, he was, that his believers believed that he was resurrected uh, from the grave. And so that he was a historical person, that he did die on a cross, and that his followers followed after him because he resurrected from the grave. And so those were just two examples of, of extra-biblical uh, history that is there concerning Jesus Christ. And there's a lot more than just that. So there is that reality, and because there is that reality of Jesus Christ being a historical person who was in a time and in a place in, in history, we asked, okay, well, what should our response be to that? And we said that our response to that should be to come into a, a, a relationship with Jesus Christ on a, on a personal level. And so we looked at verses 5 and 6, and in verse 5 and 6, there were three words that stood out there. The first one was that of faith the second one was obedience and the third was belonging or having a relationship with Jesus Christ and so he said a person can come into a a real relationship a personal relationship uh, that is that is an incredible uh, an incredible relationship that you can know him personally and we showed him in contrast to say George Washington and I asked you how many of you no, George Washington, of course, we all agree, yeah, he's a historical character, but he said, but how many of you personally knew him or know him? And the answer is, is no one personally knows him because he's dead, okay? 
And so we said, but you can know Jesus personally. But a person says, well, no, but he's dead. No, he's not. He resurrected from the grave. He lives forever and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what Hebrews, the 12th chapter in verse 2 says. So he is a living Lord. He's a living Savior, and you can have a personal relationship with him. And it's based on what Paul said here in Romans 1, verses 5 through 6. The sequence of coming to know Jesus is, of course, there's faith. We believe who he is. That faith produces obedience, and, produ and, and obedience produces a relationship or belonging in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then I ended the sermon by talking about, well, how does one come into this known relationship with Jesus Christ? And I talked to you about baptism. But I didn't talk a very long time about baptism. It was fairly quick ride down as we talked about Romans, the sixth chapter, verses three down through around verse four. We looked a little bit at Acts two and verse 38. I, I quoted that to you. And, and so we looked at that and I got to thinking, well, man, that was really fast. And so maybe this is something that we need to come to a better understanding about what is baptism about? To some of you, this is old news. To some of you, it's new news. It's something that you haven't thought about. And so I thought, okay, well, let's, let's talk about what the Bible says about uh, baptism and maybe do some explaining of what baptism is about. So that's what the lesson is about. So surprisingly, at least to me anyway, baptism probably is one of the most controversial subjects to those who are claiming to be Christians. In Christendom, it's just a controversial kind of, of thing. It surprises me. But baptism is something that is important. I know it's important because, you know, it's mentioned over 100 times in the New Testament. Um, it talks about a, re a person coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and it's mentioned in every story or every conversion record that is mentioned that has to do with names, whether you're talking about the Ethiopian eunuch or whether you're talking about Lydia and her household or the Philippian jailer and his household or the 3,000 on the day of, of Pentecost or the disciples of John in Acts the 19th chapter all those people had related in one thing that was in common among all of them and that was is they were baptized into into christ well like i said it's a controversial kind of thing and so so what is the different positions that are out there concerning baptism well some say that baptism is absolutely unnecessary and has nothing to do with one's situation that a person is actually born totally depraved and are without any ability whatsoever to respond to the good news or to the heralding of the gospel. At some point in their life, they come to the point of belief, and at that point, God imputes grace to them. Since they're able to do anything that is good, God imputes that grace, which is irresistible. And so, therefore, baptism is a, is, is a non-starter. It's not something that is needed. Others would say that baptism is a command to be obeyed after one has been saved. You are saved, and then you are baptized. And the, the thinking along this line says, well, baptism is an outward sign of an inward grace. I've already been saved, and so therefore I'm, a, I'm going to be baptized as a result of that, that fact. Some say that baptism is required by a denomination if you want to become a member of it. And still others say that baptism is for the remission of, of sins and must be performed, you know, even on babies so that they can be saved. Why? Well, because they're totally depraved. Unless they are baptized, they're going to be lost. And so some hold to that position. And then some say that baptism is by immersion 
uh, some by pouring water, some by uh, sprinkling, some by dipping their finger in some water and placing it on a person's head, and that becomes uh, baptism. So immersion, sprinkling, and, and pouring. So what does the Bible say about that? If the Bible in your bookstore is in the nonfiction area, then it's based on fact. It's based on history, and your Bible is a historical book. And so you can look back in it and determine, what does the Bible say about this important subject? Well, in the New Testament, there's really not a lot of controversy in terms of history about baptism. No controversy about that in the early church and how they practice uh, baptism. A number of, of the teachings on the subject of baptism come from, generally from an argument of human reasoning. You know, we get thinking to ourselves, well, what do I think is acceptable? And because what I think is acceptable, God must accept that as, as, as well. And so oftentimes baptism is looked at, determined by, you know, a, a, your view of what you think salvation is about and what the requirements of salvation is about. Or maybe it's just a desired convenience. For instance, Novation was a, a person, historical person, back in 250 A.D. who wanted to be baptized uh, in a baptismal, uh, a, Baptist, a baptismal place to be immersed, but he wasn't able to do so because he couldn't physically make it. And so uh, he had water poured upon his head, and, and that became baptism. But it wasn't something that was practiced in the church now for another probably 1,200 years before they would move it from an immersion to that of a pouring of water upon a, a person's head. Some would call that clinical uh, baptism. All of those things have, have figured into the discussion of baptism. All these different kinds of views and positions have figured into how a person might view this idea of baptism. But let me ask you to do something. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4. This is Paul the Apostle speaking as he writes to the church in, in Ephesus. And he's going to uh, share some things about oneness. He's, he's talking about unity, okay? But notice what he, he says. He says, verse 3, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now listen to what he says. Now there is one body... And one spirit, just as you were also called into one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. So the question, as you just kind of just logically work down through the passage of Scripture, would be, well, how many bodies are there? The body he's talking about is the church, okay? So how many bodies are there? He says, well, there's just one body. How many faiths are there? He said, there's just one faith. How many lords are there? Well, there's just one Lord. How many gods are there? Well, there's just one God. How many baptisms are there? How many did Paul say there were? Well, Paul says there's just one, one baptism. That's all he says. He just simply says there is one baptism, which puts us in a, a quandary because I've already mentioned to you just historically the various modes of baptism that are occurring uh, throughout history, okay? And then Paul comes along and says there is just one baptism. So how many baptisms are mentioned in the Bible? Well, I'm going to share with you five, but there's a lot more than that. There's several more than that, but they're kind of incidental in nature. But the first one would be that baptism is a baptism of fire. John was asked about this, and he says, There is one coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
And so there's a baptism of judgment that's on the way. Fire is usually a judgment. Sometimes fire is used in the sense of a cleansing, but he's saying there is a baptism of fire or judgment that's on the way. Not here yet, but it's going to come. There is the baptism of John the Baptist over in Mark, the first chapter, verses 4 and 5. And in that section of Scripture, there it said John came baptizing people for repentance and, the, for the, and for forgiveness of sin. So there was John's baptism as he was calling the nation of Israel back to God. Remember, there had been over 400 years of, of silence. God hadn't been speaking to the people. So there was complete silence that was going on. Um, and then all of a sudden, John came in the wilderness and he is preaching and it says that people are going out from all the, the environs, out of the cities and villages, and they're going into the wilderness and they're listening to what John is saying. And John, it says, is baptizing people. And that's why he's called John the Baptist. He is baptizing people. And in that sense, he's, he's calling this nation back to repentance, to starting all over again, or baptism. Then there was the baptism of the Red Sea. That's what Paul was talking about when the children of Israel had uh, left uh, uh, captivity, in which they'd been in for over 400 plus years. They're leaving ca uh, captivity in Egypt, and their backs are up against the wall at the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his army is on the way, and God, through Moses, parts the Red Sea, and the children of Israel pass through the sea on dry land, and are saved on the other side. And Paul calls this a baptism of those people, baptism of the red sea. But that's history and that's past. Then there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised as he met with his 12 apostles in the upper room, in which is called the final discourse, it begins in chapter 13 of John. But in chapter 14, he promises them that he's gonna send them a comforter, a helper, the Holy Spirit, he promises them that in John the 15th chapter. He promises it again in the 16th chapter. And then before his ascension in Acts the first chapter, after he had been resurrected, he talks about the fact that they are going to be baptized of the Holy Spirit and that they're to stay in Jerusalem. They are not to depart from there. They're to stay in Jerusalem. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 down through 4, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, overwhelms or whelms the apostles judas is now dead matthias has taken his place and the holy spirit baptizes them and it's shown by them demonstrating being able to speak in tongues or in in languages so there are four baptisms that are there and then there is water baptism that is talked about in john the third chapter verse 23 matthew the third chapter verse 16 and then in acts 8 chapter verses 35 through 39 okay so We'll be reading these passages here just in a few moments here, but there you have five baptisms that are mentioned, but Paul says, how many baptisms are there? Well, he says there's just one. So now you've got to figure out which one is the one that's commanded in the Scriptures. You know, is it baptism in fire? Well, no, that's coming, that's a judgment. Is it John's baptism? Well, in Acts the 19th chapter, you know, Paul asked those disciples of John there, he asked them, he says, um, this is in Ephesus. He asked him, he says, uh, have you been baptized? And he said, well, yeah, we were baptized with, the, with John's baptism. And he goes, okay, but have you received the Holy Spirit? No, we haven't heard any such thing as that. So it says that he goes on and he preaches them about Jesus, and then he baptizes those disciples of, 
of, of John. So obviously John's baptism didn't cut it, so now Jesus' baptism has supplanted that of John's baptism is the one that's being practiced from that point on. Holy Spirit baptism is a promised baptism that Jesus gave to his apostles. And then, of course, what is water of baptism? So how can we know the difference? Well, the way you know the difference is just by opening up the scriptures and, and looking at them, and you're looking for either a de- direct command or a precept. You're looking for, is there any examples of baptism in the New Testament? And are there, is there any inferences? Is there anything that's implied by a reference to uh, baptism? I think it begins by answering three questions. The first question is this. Well, who should be baptized? What does the Bible say about who should be baptized? That's one. Another question would be, well, how should one be baptized? Is there a mode in which a person should be baptized? What does the Bible say about that? And then three, for what purpose? Why are you being baptized? Is there, you know, is there some rhyme or reason to why you are going to be baptized into Christ? And so what we're going to do is I'm just going to try to work down through these three questions with you for the remainder of our time. First of all, uh, who should be baptized? Well, everyone should be because Jesus commanded it. In Mark, the 16th chapter, verses 15 and 16, he's in the, another great, great commission passage, he says, Go and preach the gospel to all creation. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that disbelieves shall be condemned. He commands it. Or Matthew, the 28th chapter, in verse 19, his last commandments that he gives, recorded by Matthew, there in verse 18, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus commanded that, his, that those who herald the good news are to go and teach people, and those who are believed and are baptized are saved, and that is how you are also made into a disciple of Jesus or a follower of Jesus Christ. So Jesus said, he that believes and is baptized, he says, shall be saved. And those are Jesus' words, and of course, those are not my words. And then in Acts 8th chapter and verse 12 that was read to you by Dave some moments ago, there it says that the church is being ravaged by Paul and that they are running for their lives, okay? And it says that Philip, who was one of the seven back in Acts the 6th chapter, remember he's one of the servants of the church, Philip becomes an evangelist. And so he's preaching the word, and so as they are scattered, he finds himself down in Samaria. And he preaches the word of God there, okay? And so as he is preaching the word of, of God, uh, the people are coming to believe, okay? And so here's it says what the Sumerians did here in Acts chapter 8 and verse, uh, verse 12. And when they, that is the Sumerians, when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And even Simon... Uh, he also believes, and he is baptized as, as well. So these people are coming to a relationship with, with God. So what are the prerequisites? If a person wants to be baptized, are there any prerequisites to a person being baptized? And the answer is, is well, one is that of belief before uh, baptism. Over in, over in John, the 8th chapter and verse 24, you remember he's having a running discourse with the Jewish leaders. And he says to them in verse 24, he says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. And they said, well, who are you? And he says, it's what I've been telling you from the very beginning. 
okay? And so he, he's told him a lot of things concerning who he is, that he is the son of God, that he is the son of, of, of man, and a number of other things. But they, he tells them, unless you believe that, you're going to die in your sins. You might remember back in Matthew, the 16th chapter, there it says that Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, that's northern part of, of Israel. He comes to Caesarea Philippi, and he says to his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? What's the word on me? And they said, well, some of them say that you're John the Baptist or Jeremiah or one of the prophets, or Elijah or one of the prophets. He says, but who do you say that I am? And remember Peter's great confession was, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You are the son of God. He is making a confession. He's telling him, I believe who you are. I believe who you said you are. I believe all the things that I've seen you, seen you do and the things that I've heard, I, I believe. Here's a question for you to think about. Can a baby believe in anything? Can a baby believe? Well, I, I think they can believe when they're hungry and they can believe when their diaper's dirty. But believe in, and every once in a while they'll smile at you because they believe you're the mom or dad. But, you know, but can they believe? Can, what can they believe about concerning Jesus Christ? This is a question for you to think about. Look at Romans, the, ninth, the 10th chapter, verses 9 and 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. This is Paul writing to the church in Rome. These are Christians, okay? And he's reminding them of an essential part of what their faith is about. Look at what he says, beginning, let's begin in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall believe. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So obviously there's something about this idea of confession that is super important. Confessing that we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, believing that Jesus Christ resurrected from the, the grave. Confession is a verbal acknowledgement. Notice it's if you confess what, how, with your mouth. So it's not a mental assent. It's something that you're going to vocalize. You're going to verbally vocalize that. If I were to ask you, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And you say, yes, I believe that. Do you believe you resurrected from the grave? Yes, I believe that. That's a confession. So you acknowledge verbally that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Here's another question. Can an infant speak? Can an infant say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe he resurrected from the grave. Question for you to think about. Then there's Acts chapter 2 <clears throat> and verse uh, 38. In verse 37, after P Peter had preached that first gospel sermon, there it says that they were pricked in their hearts. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? So the implication there is, is that they are believers. They've been shared the, the gospel message of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. And God said, this man whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, he has made him both Lord and Christ. They're pricked in their hearts. They're touched inside their hearts. And they ask, what, do we, what should we do about this? And so Peter, he tells them to repent. In fact, Acts 2.30 says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to dial in on this word, repent. In Luke 3, chapter 13, verse 3, and I think in verse 5, Jesus says, I tell you no, lest you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
So there's a need of repentance. So what does it mean to repent? Where well, the word repent means to make a turn. It's to, check, it's to change your direction in life. If you know you're going in one direction and God says you ought to be going in the other, then you make a U-turn. You make a change in your life. If you're on a freeway, okay, and it's, it's a one-way freeway, okay, you're on the right lane and you're going, you're going east, okay, uh, on I-84 out here and you're going east and you find yourself, you know, on that side of the freeway going in the wrong direction, what do you need to do? Well, you need to repent. You need to make a turn because if you don't, you're going to end up in a collision. Well, God is saying, listen, there's a way I want you to go. Unless you go on that way, you're going to end up in a collision. And this is one that you're not going to survive. So you need to repent. And that's what Peter is telling them. You need to make a change. So how does repentance take place? Repentance is a change of mind. It's where you come to knowledge about what is truth, what is expected of you. That truth moves from your head 15 infinite inches, or unless you've got a long neck, 18 infinite inches to your heart, where you're, you're changed on the inside. Maybe it's sorrow that is there. Maybe it's huge regret that is there, but that's not enough. Repentance is not, does not have fruition until it's acted upon. So repentance is a change of mind, heart, and then action. I'm going to change my, my action. So what sin does an infant need to repent of? Just a question. So Acts 2 and verse 38, it answers the question, well, who then is, is ready to be baptized? Because Peter tells them, that, yeah, this is day one of the church, okay? Day one, first sermon preached in the church. And they asked Peter, what should we do? And he tells them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So who is ready to be baptized? The answer is, is a person who is mature enough to believe in Jesus and willing to openly confess that fact and repent of their sins or their direction in life. That's a person who is ready to be baptized. Which leads us to the next one, and that is, okay, well, how should one be baptized? What is the mode of baptism? Well, the word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, okay? Baptizo, and the word baptizo, or bapto, or baptizomai, it means to, to dip, it means to plunge, it means to submerge, it means to immerse, it means to whelm or overwhelm. That's the meaning of the word. So the word means basically to immerse or to dip. That's the meaning of that word. Now, for those of you who are, I don't expect you to be Greek language people, okay, but your New Testament is written in Koine Greek. That's a dead language. That means that once the word is there and the definition is applied to that word, that word never changes. Our English words are different. English words, we, I think we put in like 1,600 new English words a day and delete 1,600 English words a day. So our, our language in English is constantly evolving, changing meanings, okay? But uh, in that day, when the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, it was written, in, if you would, in stone or granite, and it will never change. So that word baptizo will always mean to dip, to plunge, to submerge, to dunk, to dip, to immerse, to whelm. It'll always mean that, and you can never change that fact. And yet some practice baptism as a pouring of water on a person. Now, some more Greek for you. The word for pour is the word katakeo. And 
And this word here is never once used in reference to baptism. Never once is it ever used in terms of baptism. It's used in a lot of different ways, but never in that context. Okay? Some practice sprinkling as a mode of baptism. There are two words for the word sprinkle or sprinkling in the New Testament. Nazra, I think, is the one for the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, it's prosuxis and then rantizo. Rantizo, whenever I think of the word rantizo, I think of raining, okay, or to sprinkle. And yet this word is never used in the New Testament in reference to baptism. Never. It's never used in reference to a baptism. The word baptism is the word baptizo. So the question is, is where, where did both pouring and sprinkling come from as a mode of, of baptism? Well, it was an innovation by the Catholic Church that began at the Council of Ravenna in 1311 A.D. That's where, it's, that's where it started. Novation did it in 250, but now he's got to wait almost 1,200 years or thereabouts for 1311 at the Council of Ravenna when the church came together to talk about various doctrines. One of the things that they talked about was baptism, and because in the Catholic Church, they're the church of authority. The church is the authority. The papacy is the authority. The Bible becomes a guideline, and if they say the baptism is sprinkling, then baptism is sprinkling. If they say baptism is pouring, then baptism is pouring. But from the Reformation movement, that is, those who tried to reform the Christian, the Catholic Church and move forward, many of them adopted the, these forms of baptism, of sprinkling and pouring as a mode of, of baptism. But remember how the, Christ, the Scriptures uses this word, baptizo means to dip, to submerge, to plunge, to immerse, to, to wound. So what does the scriptures teach? Well, look at John chapter 3 and verse 23. John chapter 3 and verse 23. I don't know, this might have should have been a two-part sermon. And John was baptizing near Anom, near Salem, because there was much water there, and many were coming out being baptized. So why was John baptizing at Anom, near Salem? And his answer was, because there's much water there. It requires much, much water. Look at Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16. Matthew 3 and verse 16. This is Jesus' baptism here. But Peter answering John said, Permitted at this time, for it is in this way that it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him, and after being baptized, immersed, dipped, plunged, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a form of a dove and lighted upon him. So Jesus went up out of the water. He was baptized, dipped, submerged, plunged. Look at Acts chapter 8. This is the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts chapter 8. Remember in the latter part of chapter 8, eight you had the, the Sumerians who were being baptized. After believing they were being baptized, men and women alike. Philip, later on, is in the, the, um, the Arabah. Um, he's on the road there, and he sees a, a treasure of the queen of Candace from Ethiopia, which means he's probably a black man. And he's, he's in his chariot or wagon, and he's riding down through the desert way, okay? And 
um, some call it the Gaza Strip. And he, anyway, he's traveling down that way. And Philip joins him to the chariot, and, and it says that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading from Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, about the suffering servant. And so he asks Peter, he goes, who's this talking about? Is he talking about himself, or is he talking about someone else? And it says that he began, it says that Philip began from that point to teach him about Jesus, okay? Well, in verse 36, it says, they went along the road, and they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, but went on his way rejoicing. So here you have an example of water baptism, of them coming along the way. You have an example of water baptism with John, with Jesus, and now here with the Ethiopian a eunuch. It says they went down into the water, he baptized him, dipped, plunged, some, immersed him, and then he came up out of the water. So baptism or immersion uh, was, was not a new thing in the New Testament. It wasn't something that he just came up with. It was something that was ancient. Mikvahs or mikvahs. Mikvah means a collection, a collection, well, a collection of water. And they were plentiful in Jesus' day and in the apostles' day. They were ceremonial cleansing pools, if you will. If, if you were a, say you lived in Nazareth and you, want, you were a Jew and you wanted to come to Jerusalem, say on the Day of Atonement, and you wanted to offer up a sacrifice, okay, then you would come along, you'd probably take a bath that would wash off the dirt on your flesh, but then they would go into these mikvahs and they would probably go to the money changer, change their money, buy their sacrifice or purchase their sacrifice, whether it's a dove or a pigeon or, or a, a goat, they'd buy new clothes. And they would go to these mikvahs, and, which were cleansing pools, and they would step down. And they want to be ceremonial clean, so they'd go on one side and come up the other side, put on their new clothes, and then go in and offer their sacrifice, ceremonial clean. These things are all over, all over uh, Israel. Over 700 of them, 200 just around the environs of, of Jerusalem. They're in Beersheba, which is down in the middle of a desert. They're on top of Masada, which is a fortress on the top of a plateaued mountain. They're in Qumran. You know, you'll find them in Capernaum. You'll find them in Caesarea Philippi. You'll find them in Dan. You'll find them in Magdala. You can find just everywhere you go, these things are all over the place. These mikvahs are there, and that's kind of like what one looks like. In front of the temple of Jerusalem, there are well over 50 of them of these baptismal pools. Sometimes they're double entry. This is a single entry. Sometimes they're double entry. You go on one side, around the corner, and up the other side. Going dirty, outside clean is the idea of what the mikvahs were about. And like I said, there's 50 of them on the south wall, the entrance to the old temple, and there's like over 50 of them. Then if you go to the west wall, there's a bunch of them along there. East wall, there's nothing there. It drops off into the Kidron Valley. I used to wonder, okay, well, on the day of Pentecost, it said 3,000 were baptized. How do they do that? How did they baptize that many people? Did they all go down to the Pool of Siloam, which is below the hill of Ephel, the city of David, which is a, a pretty long walk? Or did they go up to the Pool of Bethsaida, you know, and up by the Antonio Fortress? Did they walk up there? Well, no, they're just all over the place. Here is a modern-day mikvah, if you will, uh, and it's water. It's a cleansing pool. It looks like a baptistry, okay? But in Jewish terms, it's a it's a a mikvah, which tells you this, is that baptism by immersion was what the church of the first century practiced. 
It was natural for them. And so they once said, no, wait a second. Why do you have to be dunked on the day of Pentecost? There's no argument there. Why can't I be sprinkled? Why can't I be poured on? There's no argument there. They know what to do because they have been taught all their lives about what cleansing is about. And when Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, it goes off like a bell and they know what, how to respond to it. So baptism was an immersion in water all the way up to the 14th century when the Council of Ravenna changed things. The scripture of baptism has always been by water. Why should one be baptized? Well, Mark 16 and verse 16 and 28 and verse 19 says how you become a disciple. Jesus commands it. And Jesus says that baptism saves. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that disbelieves shall be condemned. Why didn't he say he that disbelieves shall be condemned because they're not baptized? Because if you don't believe, you're not going to go there in the first place. So he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's what Jesus says. And no man has a right to make that change. 1 Peter 3 and verse 20 and 21, he likens, the, um, he likens the, um, the flooding of the world and the people being saved on Noah's, on, on the ark, okay? And he says, in like manner, we are baptized, not a washing away of the filth of the flesh, but an answer unto good conscience, because baptism now saves you. That's what it says. So Peter says, baptism saves. And he's an apostle, and he said that. On the day of Pentecost, Acts 2 and verse 38. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So baptism puts one into Christ. It's for the forgiveness of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the demarcation at baptism is when one receives the Holy Spirit. Acts 2 and verse 41 says those who received his word were baptized and they're added that day 3,000 souls. So you can't join the church of your choice. You can only become a part of the church of Christ's choice. And when one is baptized, God adds you to that church. He makes you a part of that church. Verse 47 says that they uh, were in fellowship with one another and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. How was he adding them? By doing what they did in verse 41. Uh, Paul's conversion over in Acts 22 and verse 16, Ananias comes to him. He has an experience on the road to Damascus. He comes to Damascus. Ananias, a disciple, comes to Paul, tells him what God's plan is, and then he says to Paul, what are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So baptism has to do with washing away of sins. Romans 6 verses 3 and 4 talks about it being a burial and a resurrection to newness of, of life. Let me just read it to you. Paul is speaking to them, and he says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Why is it a new life? Because your sins are remitted. You go in, you come out one who's cleansed of all your sins. Colossians 2, verses 11 and 13 is, a, is an interesting passage of Scripture. At least it is it's to me because it tells us something about baptism that you, you really don't expect. Listen to what he says. Verse 9 says, For in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you were made complete or perfected, 
And he is the head over all rule authority. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of a body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which also you were raised with him through the faith that is working, that is the working of God who raised him from the dead. Okay, so what is he telling you? Well, he's telling you that baptism is a spiritual circumcision. We don't think of it that way. But remember, covenant people in the Old Testament were circumcised. That's what a Hebrew was. Okay? And that's how they knew they were covenant people compared to the Gentiles who were uncircumcised. Here he says it's a spiritual circumcision where the old man is cut away and a new man comes. And he says, and it's through a burial that this takes place that we saw in Romans 3, the enactment of the death, burial, and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. Notice also that it's a work of God. Some say, well, if you're baptized, that's your work. Well, no, it's not. It's the working of God. I'm baptized simply in obedience to my faith and doing what Jesus told me to do, okay? And so God's the one that's at work here, not me, okay? Galatians 3 and verse 21, verse 26 says, well, who are the sons of faith? In verse 27, Paul says, those of us who have been baptized into Christ have clothed ourselves or put on Christ. And then he says there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, and etc. But there he says that in baptism one puts on Christ or is clothed in Christ, which means what? Where are those who are not baptized? Well, they're outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. So just to sum up, okay, and I'm wrapping this thing up, okay. What happens when one is baptized according to what the scriptures have told us? If you if you inductively pull them all together okay what all does it do well it puts one into christ it's for the forgiveness of sins it's how you receive the holy spirit it washes away sin it puts on christ it's a spiritual circumcision it reenacts the death the burial of the resurrection i mean of of the gospel for instance jesus died on the cross was buried in the tomb three days later he resurrected to new life Paul says, in like figure, we die to ourselves, repenting of our sins. We're buried in a watery grave of baptism. We rise up to walk in newness of life. Why? Because we're now the children of God. We've been added to the church. Our sins have been washed away. It starts a new life, John the third chapter. And it adds one to the church. That's how you become a part of the Lord's church. So, you know, if a person says, Richard, I want to be baptized, and I'll say, okay, do you believe that Jesus Christ? Said, yeah, I believe that. Are you willing to make that confession? I am. I believe Jesus Christ. Is, I believe you resurrected from the grave. So you want to be baptized? Yeah. Then I'm going to baptize them. I'm not going to argue with them. I'm going to baptize them. Because I don't know if, I mean, I'm going to assume that they're telling me the truth, that they really believe all those things. But what if they don't? What if they do it just because their wife says that they expect her husband to do it or vice versa? Or what if they do it because, you know, the children say, well, that's going to make my parents happy. Or I want to do it because I have a boyfriend or I have a, a girlfriend. Or it's a good business decision. I mean, people do, you know, people do things weirdly sometimes. And so I don't know why a person always is being baptized. I know why they should be baptized. I know what happens at that point there. But God knows because he knows their heart. And when the heart is right, then he adds them to his church that his son died for. So faith leads to obedience. Obedience leads to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so the question for you this morning, if you haven't done so, is that oh, do you need to be baptized into Christ? If you do, then what a great day 
to do it. Uh, there's a passage of scripture over in Psalm 118. This is the day the Lord hath made. I'll rejoice and be glad in it. This is a great day. Today's the day of salvation. You may not have another day. You may not have tomorrow. You have right now. This is what's promised to you right now. And if you need to respond to your faith by being obedient and doing what Jesus said to do, then you ought to do it. You ought to do it. Eternity may be in the balance for you. Once you do so.